out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David E. Storm. As always, we love a special guest. Let's be honest here. I'm obsessed with the special guest. Um, this week it is going to be the turn of, I think it's the Sheffield bass band. It is, the Dillons. Well, I know who the band were. I just didn't know where they were from. Anyway, it was Sheffield. And um, I spoke to Quentin Jennings to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. And after a very long chat to begin with, about this and that, as you do in the world of showbiz, uh, we got down to the exciting um, next part of the interview. Well, that was a long conversation, really. But uh, you'll find out lots more about the band and music in general. Uh, we were talking about the formative teen years. This was his response. Take it away. Well, I'm, uh, I'm one of six kids, fifth, which is how I got the name Quentin, who's Quintus is five. My parents oh. ran out of ideas for names give him a number um so i was low down and uh so i had two older brothers and, and uh two older sisters right so they were like my older brother and sister obviously had been you know my sister uh, my older sister was was a beetle freak you know with her hair and hippie hair and she was total hippie growing up so it was all her music that was coming down to me and then my brother when he was away at university come back with pink floyd and so there's, I have all these bands I think of as Big Brother music, right? Yes. <laughs> and then, and then there's the next brother down, who was an amazing piano player, still is, and you could play anything by ear. And I was super, you know, jealous of him. We fought all the time and all that. And I try and copy what he could play on the piano, and he'd sort of say, oh, "That's rubbish. It doesn't go like that," you know. Like, so just made me like try harder, you know, and I never had no lessons or anything, but though, but anyway, the music he was, so I was, and then, and my middle sister too. So I was getting Bowie from them and Stones and Frank Zappa and just everything. And then my parents were like big music heads, like my dad sang, my mum sang, and they used to like, I mean, they were into history and music. My dad was a writer and my mum was a historian. So there was lots of like, Music was in the family, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it was just a natural, you know, super lucky thing, you know? So, um, yeah, it was all the stuff that was coming down, like the 60s influenced stuff, the good stuff, and then, you know, what was currently happening in the 70s when, you know, I was, you know, a teen, like 14, 15, you know, and then, and then punk hit yeah. me and my younger sister. So it was like the perfect storm, I oh. guess, you know. Because be... I had an older brother who was seven years older than me and he was really into prog rock and I used to, right. I was fascinated because I was, you know, because yeah. obviously it was Top of the Pops and then he had these obscure records and he forbid me to play them. So yeah. I used to have to sne yeah. sneak, same, same deal. sneak into his room when he wasn't there and then play yeah. them like hell and then put them back and make sure he Good didn't know. Yes. Because he would absolutely throttle me. in, And right. also, you know, it was just kind of one of the, and the more he did this, the more I was like Rick Wakeman. More know, yeah. yeah, so it was like, oh, Rick yeah. Wakeman, you know, King Arthur must play that. You know, yes, Genesis, you yeah, know, and yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah. But then he had sure. Black Sabbath and he had Deep Purple. But he hated punk, you know, like that wasn't proper music, anything. He didn't have a seven-inch single in his collection. It was like albums. Like, yeah, my, bro my brother, same thing. <laughs> my brother, same thing. All of a sudden, like, 
I was so influenced by the stuff that he was like, yeah, a lot of prog stuff as well. And, you know, a very eclectic range of music he was into. And then punk, it was just like, nah. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's interesting. You know, it was like, oh, it really needles you. Yes. And, to this de- and to this day, you can almost like trace back like their politics. You know, it's like, oh, you made a decision back then. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. To, to check out and, and to, I mean, fair enough. And people do what they got to do. But it's like some of us pushed further and explored and embraced it the newness of it and you know i didn't know what the fuck it was all about i was living out in the country in suffolk you know oh whereabouts are you east burgholt oh god i'm in metfield near oh, Hol- no way yeah i know it holston hills so funny oh shit oh wow yeah yeah so like nearest town is Ipswich, you know like 10 miles away so we, i don't know what the fuck's happening you know and wow, then, that's so then strange. Then you go to school, going to school every day on the bus and like playing catch up and just being desperate to get into town and, and hear music. You know? Yes, my God, like that's going so to strange. see the Clash at the or Susie, what is it? So, Susie at the Gaumont in Ipswich, you know, John yes. Cooper Clark. You know, and there's like, and then it all started there. Yeah. Wow, that's but, quite, because because it was interesting because you couldn't just kind of I heard about the Sex Pistols but I never heard could hear them mm. because you know it wasn't just there you you had to go and buy the record so I remember asking yeah. my brother what he thought of it because I was you know I don't know about twelve at the time and he just made a like oh that's just rubbish and it was like okay yeah. so I don't I don't know when I first ever heard the Sex Pistols because it wasn't like oh I'll just go and look on YouTube or go and look on Spotify it was like okay that's you know they're not playing it on that's daytime a good radio point. I, yeah when did I actually first I mean, it must have been when I were on top of the pops you know yes for a lot of people it would have been and and which is funny because we think of them as like being like you know the big underground thing that happened that shifted everything. But it was on the mainstream media that everybody really first got to know him, right? But there was, but there was the old grey whistle test with Whisper and Bob who hated oh, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. and he made really yeah, yeah. sort of sly remarks about having he to play. Yeah, and then he got beaten up by Sid Vicious one day, didn't he? When, <laughs> when he got seen in a pub, and Sid really, really bashed him about, and because which, to... which is something, because I bet Sid weighed about like nine pounds. Yes, and he must have, you know, he probably, you know, he, he slapped him around. He slapped him around. Even Freddie Mercury wasn't worried about Sid. I think he just thought he was pathetic, really. Wasn't he? I think they were sharing the same studio at the time, and I think Freddie right. just thought he was a clown. I, I, I heard something about that, yeah. And they just, but, uh, I was where some of the best stories come is like bands sharing the same studio. <laughs> so, as uh, the 80s progressed, where mm. were you? Did you go to university then during that period? Um, I was supposed to. But like, you know, things were happening, weren't they? And uh, so I ended up going to Poly, Brighton Poly, and doing linguistics, ostensibly. Um, and then, uh, yeah, uh, and then... I because you know, old, you know, East Burgholt, isn't that where there's a big community, um, Old Hall, which is full the of... The commune, the, yeah. the, the hippie commune. So did the you... The big scandal, yeah, the, absolutely. The big play, which I've visited on numerous occasions. I, I used uh, to have yeah. friends there until they left because of... That's you know. so funny, man, because I used to go there every Sunday because my parents were Catholic when it was the seminary, right? Oh, right. So they, they had the chapel there, and that was like church and where Jesus lived and all that shit. And then... They sold it, and the next thing, like, 14 families around Burghold all got together and bought it and yep. moved in, and everyone's like, what? You know, it's like, and I remember, like, thinking, ah, oh, interesting, you know, and I remember going back to that church 
after I'd quit going to church, you know, we my parents were cool. You make up your own mind. It works yeah. for us, whatever you do, what you want. But I, I was done with it, you know, and, yes. but, but their old hall just opened and they had a rock show in the church with live bands and that yes. blew my world apart because that every that little safe English conservative thing had now become this like weird like place. There was all the religious iconography was gone, and there was lights and a PA and people smoking cigarettes and like joints and stuff. It would have been joint. Uh, it would have been joint. And central. it was loud ass in that church. Yeah. It's tiny, you know, where I grew up. I grew up down the street. I was born down the street in a whole, in the whole, it's like the world came to me. Yeah. And then, and then I, I had a summer job working on the boats at Flatford and I'll come back, walk up the hill and you can look out across the Dedham Vale. It's one, it was one of Constable's favorite views. It's That's it. Yeah. Fucking unbelievable. And one day I, in the middle of summer, like I think it was 76, that really hot one. I come out and I look across that field and this, as far as I can see, tents, like medieval tents. Right. You had the hippie oh, festival. What the fuck is this? And sure, it was the moon festival. Yes. Nobody knew anything about it, where they coming from. Nobody knew where they were coming. There were like two cops standing at the gate of the field, just like letting it happen. <laughs> and there was just thousands of people. There was it was like, you know, a festi going right on my front door. And I'd never seen, you know, as a little kid, never seen anything. And I'll never forget walking in that. It's just like, yeah, it's just like Woodstock came to your town, you know. Yes. Well, they're quite it famous. They're, they're all quite well documented now. I have to send you the website of some of those. Oh, of... I'd love to. Yeah. Oh, God, that yes. Would be wild. Because yeah. there was, because East Anglia became this kind of hippie hangout, especially in the um, 71 onwards, because there was the, the Barsham yeah. fairs and the Albion fairs. And suddenly That's all right. these people from London, not everyone, yeah. but a lot of people went, right, we're going to go and live in community in, in East Asia. Well, I couldn't believe it. I mean, because there was no heads up. You know, this all of a sudden there it is. Yes. Like, it, like in a kid's story or something, you know. I know. It all, it all makes sense because you had Reggie Perrin, you know, who got disillusioned with <laughs> mainstream. Then you had the, the good life, you know, and then you had mm-hmm. books like Self-Sufficiency by somebody Seymour. And just, That's right. And everybody suddenly wanted to get back to the land and do that. And yeah. Then, and obviously, like being in a rock band, it's a honeymoon period which quickly totally. passes and everyone's yeah. marriage breaks up and everyone's had yeah. affairs with everyone. You realise you actually got to put some work in. Yeah. <laughs> it's all gone wrong. But you've made some, be- you know, but that festival, that fair that you went to, yeah, has yeah. got an amazing, because you had a guy called Bruce Lacey. He used to do a lot of performance art, which used to mm. mostly re- mean that he would be naked running around with some sort of, <laughs> in, with feathers in his hair and, and doing some fertility <laughs> ritual, which was freaked locals out who'd never seen anything like Bruce Lacey before and his um, But, but the funny genitals. thing was, there were all these outrageousness going on in the village, and like no one cared. Everyone thought, oh, interesting. You know, no, there was no bother at all. Yes. And that, and a few people that did try to, everyone just said, uh, well, fine, they're not making a mess. No. Could be, well, in the 70s, the festivals and fairs were good. And then you had in yeah. the 80s, the Peace Convoy and that yeah. kind yeah. of that kind of freaked all the anybody who organized anything just went, 
Jesus. Yeah. The, the, peace the dog on the string people, as yeah, we used to call them. The special, <laughs> it's the brew crew and, you know, da, da, yeah. da, all that. And, it, and I knew yeah. friends who had tried to do something like that in North Norfolk. And right. it was it was like 10 people in buses, 10 buses turned up and they said, we're coming in, you, you know, we're not going to pay. And, and then mm. they wouldn't leave the field or the site for sort of six months. And he was like, fucking hell, I'm never doing that again. You know, it was like. Right. Peace and love is like forget that, and you know that was all done in good spirit. But that's yeah, that's, yeah. You know, the, so yes, the Battle of the Beanfield. But that's that's mid eighties now, isn't it's, it? It's like all of these things, though, isn't it? I mean, it's like no matter what anyone says, you know, flat management structure, anarchy, or whatever you want to call it, is like that's all well and good. But we're human beings, and if you have good leadership, everything follows that. Yes. You know what I mean? So if you had someone like you know, who was a real, like, head in the group, you know, like, everyone respected this, like, you know, or this woman who's, like, kind of a natural leader and, like, be cool, don't be a dick. Yes. You know, that kind of culture goes into the group, you know? Yeah. And and the adverse is true, as we're seeing right now, you know? Like, you're here in the States, same thing. Yeah, you do. Yeah. You can, you can, I suppose, yes, I remember this conversation about, thing, you know, you need to have a good structure and then you can have kind of free expression. Yeah. You can be, oh, yeah, spontaneous, but you can't just have spontaneous, be spontaneous without any structure. Otherwise, it just looks like a mess, yeah. you know. Yeah, you got, you got to know. You got to know what the basic limits are, respecting other people, and if you don't, then you don't get to play. Yes. So as the eighties progressed, there was a lot of bands that I had interviewed who, especially oh. in that early period, um, there was a lot of unemployment because you know you had you, you know the Thatcher government, you had the Falklands, then but yeah. you had the unemployment job seekers allowance, enterprise allowance. So a lot of people claimed all that and then went, brilliant, mm-hmm. I can be in a band for a year and yeah. take, take drugs right. and play some music. And then luckily, people like John Peel were there, and, and if it was quirky. Mm-hmm. weird enough he'd sort of give it a spin in a John Peel session so That's that right. kind of helped bizarrely the alternative indie world to suddenly develop quite quite rapidly actually so what were you mm-hmm. doing because obviously it's still a long way before you enter the band and the Dylan's um okay yeah so I mean I hadn't I didn't play in any bands at all really until I moved up to Sheffield I mean I was always playing music on my own you know I really had figured out how to be get together with other musicians. It was like one guy, one guitar player. I remember I'd go across town lugging a keyboard. In front. He was the only guy I played with. We were playing his dorm, you know. <laughs> I don't know what we were doing. But like going to massive efforts to play, but there was never anyone to play with. And then when I went to Sheffield, it's, that's when it started. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't really get playing until 82. 83, no, well, 83, 84, probably. Yes. With other people. But then, then as the, you know, but there's still quite a gap, isn't there, between that yeah. and the Dillons. So were you just yeah. kind of working or just a student at that time? I was a student and then I was, um, yeah, I mean, I was a student. I was trying to, you know, think that's what I was supposed to be doing. But uh, I was always obsessed with music. I spent more, t- you know, I, I spent like... I guess the period between between going leaving school and you know moving up north was all about going to see bands live. My mate was the head of the Brighton what was it student union yes. committee, and he DJed every night, every Friday night at this club. But like he would call me every day and say, "What are you doing tonight?" 
and I'd say so-and-so. And he goes, all right, you've got to come meet me at so-and-so. Three Johns are playing. I'm like, all right, who are the three Johns? And he'd <laughs> always say the same thing. It's rock and roll. Just it's, rock, it's rock and roll. It's like, right. yes. I, 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 I owe that guy so much because he, you know, micro Disney, all these bands, Nick Cave, all these people. I never, yeah, well, I knew that Nick Cave. But you had, but, all, but you also had the lead mill, didn't you? In in the lead, well, that lead mill was Sheffield, yeah. So when I went, I worked at the lead mill. The first job I got there, and uh, so that was another thing that really got me fired up because I was seeing all these great bands come. I never forget. I think the first time I worked there, like the first week, Robin Hitchcock, watching him sound check, <laughs> was like. This is, I have to come and watch this guy tonight, you know. Yes. So I just, I stayed in the limo and just like watched the show and was like, oh man. And there were all these bands, the Dave Howard singers. Remember those? No, I have never heard from of Canada, a duo from Canada. Dave Howard, wow. Fucking oh, man, drum machine and keyboard, so loud, so good. Oh. And they're, and they would have what one strobe light and a bunch of confetti on stage. <laughs> it was just like, but the tunes are actually banging as well. And yeah, there was all this crazy stuff. I guess that was kind of the perubu yeah. side. Because cause, cause I've got, Canadian in a very simplistic way, I've got indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which is the mm. years of the Smiths, let's face it. So there was a real, yeah. there was a real jingly jangly vibe going on. And you had bands, you'd had orange juice but then you had that sort of the smiths appeared and then suddenly yeah. i think things changed quite a lot and then you had the june brides the go-betweens the triffids all those kind of bands and the wolfhounds and this and Bodines. the Bodines, mccarthy everything you know and then yeah. and, and then within the world of c86 you had stunt big flame bog shed and, and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. was, was happening and john peel was right there the great yeah. you know like a gatekeeper but then kind of the smiths <laughs> broke and 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 there was like that was the end of the, not the end of the party but things definitely changed and then ecstasy appeared da, da, da. so then you had That's you know it. like the soup dragons happy mondays totally uh, you know primal scream and stone roses yeah. it was like we're gonna take drugs and we're gonna party um That's and it. that was all going well so that kind of a lot of <laughs> bands that i have interviewed just went actually yeah. no one wanted us and plus we'd most bands have a five-year narrative that i found which is always kind of interesting um mm. you know the, the five-year yeah. marriage so a lot of the bands had by then had like we've formed that with each other or we don't really get on we've made no money and now nobody even wants to see so even our fans aren't that bothered about us anymore yeah they're not they don't want the third album <laughs> you're very that's very true what you're saying about that and i remember that time very clearly yes so that band, was uh, bands out so go on no and i was i was gonna say you know so by that 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 was kind of knocking a lot of people out i suppose but then there was other bands who were coming along at that time who said hey wait a minute we're just we're just forming you know like they were like the sundays and carter the unstoppable sex machine and and then you had my bloody carter yes carter Carter. Carter was sort of there lurking and 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 about to make the big moment in glastonbury 1992 when they headlined which everyone is still freaked out no yeah yeah you know what i mean everyone (laughs) carter headlined Unbelievable. So good. That was so amazing, good. wasn't it? They were there, the zeitgeist moment for them. But it was kind of just an interesting period because those bands, like, you had that whole scene in North London with Mighty, um, the My Bloody Valentine, then you had Silverfish yeah. and the Faith mm-hmm. Healers and Noise. People wanted noise, didn't they? And a bit of shoegazing thrown in. So by then, 1,000 Violins had, yeah. had broken up. 
the, yeah. at the late eighties in 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 kind of a messy in a messy way, which was quite interesting. Because what yes. I realised that during that period, and that's why people like me and a lot of people my age have no idea what music would be like now but in those days you had the gatekeepers you know you had John Peel so if you yeah. played something if you created an odd sound bog shed big flame you know he would play it and then you get a John Peel session uh -huh. then you got you know the album you got you know and every town had a venue didn't they Norwich had the wild yeah. club you had the lead yeah. mill Brighton yeah. all the elements were in place for for the narrative to unfold yeah. for each and you had act, and the yeah. NME, you know, it was, I don't know, 100,000. Then you had Melody Maker Sounds. So basically wow. you would get 150 to 200 people like myself who would just go to the art centre on a Wednesday night or Tuesday right. night just because you thought, oh, there's three bands, the janitors are playing, I've heard them, I've got the singles, yeah. so I'm going to go and see them. And so you got that chance as a musician to play in front of people who weren't like your friends and family and anybody else. Absolutely. You emotionally black. Which is the only you. way you get any good. Yes, you know? this is true. I remember watching mm. a documentary about Twisted Sister and they just played. Oh, I saw that. I love that. Um, so, yeah. you, you know, it was kind of interesting. So, yeah, so Colin at this stage had had mm. the, the 1000 violins had had sort of come to an end, hadn't they? Yep. In 89, in a... In a in That's a, right. In a haze. So when did, you know, so you'd also, apart from you'd had the ecstasy, but then we'd had grunge come in. So mm -hmm. then you, you formed in 891. So... What... Well, they're not actually formed in 91, because this is, I mean, this is Colin, really, because uh, between the violins and the Dylan starting was... Well, I mean, like, he's like, well, what the fuck am I going to do now? And met these two guys who had a, a like, little studio set up in, in Jim, Jim and Andy. Jim had this, like, eight-track set up in his garage, and they'd been tinkering around. And in Colin's words, I remember, I wasn't involved at that point, right? I came much later. But... Um, but so Colin told me the stories, like, yeah, they fucking called me up, mate. And I, I went over and they're like, all right, play us something there. And they, and they played the tape and it was like really well produced, sound really great sound, you know. And Colin's like, yeah, it sounds actually really excellent. And you did that in here. That's really good. And these guys were like, cool. <laughs> and then he's like, so where's the where, where's the melody? And they would be like, What's a melody? <laughs> right? And Colin being Colin, you like, go up. Mate, fucking listen. The bit of your whistle, mate. You know what I mean? It's like, every breath you take, whatever it is, that's your melody. Oh, well, I haven't got any of them. <laughs> it's like, can you do it? Can you sing? I'm like, yeah, of course I can fucking sing. Well, can you? Can you write? Can you do the melody? I'm like, mate, this is a two chord like jam you got going on here. You need at least three chords for us. They didn't know anything about songwriting, basically, these guys, right? But were they good guitar and, players? Uh, well, not really. I mean, they could do like Cocteau Twins stuff, you know, they knew a few chord shapes and how to make it sound pretty was shimmery, right? With a drum machine. And that's basically Jim was a huge Cocteau Twins and he got this reverby thing. And But, you know, Colin was like, might as well help these guys out. They've got nothing else going on, in his words. And so they're saying, well, we don't know how to write songs. Can you write some, you know? And the way he tells it is like, they were so not knowing of anything about music. 
that he just taught they didn't know what three chord trick was. He's like, fucking hell, mate. Like, there's three chords, right? You got your one, your four, and your five. Do you not know? Like, you know, they didn't. It's like that, right? You're in a key of D, right? Right? Then you're going to count off from D. Yeah, literally explaining this to these guys. And wrote God, like, you know, just to demonstrate how you do it. I said, right, you could do this. And that's right. They recorded the backing track, you know, like, gives it a beat, and he put down bass and basic guitar tracks. And they were going, wow, that sounds fucking awesome. They're high-fiving each other. And Colin's like, it's still not a bloody song. It's just a three chords. What are you talking about? <laughs> you need a fucking melody. And they're like, can you sing? What is he going for? Can you know, just... But he did, you know, just made it up on the spot. And uh, the demo, and so he did nine songs like that, or, or, or band, I forget, over, you know, just going up and hanging out, smoking pot and yelling at these guys. And then uh, this, we still, I don't really know how it happened, but this guy, Chris Feiger, who was a local BBC DJ at Radio Sheffield, got hold of the, of the tape and, you know, fancied himself as like an impresario type, curator type. And all credit to him, he, again, I still was not involved at this point. He shopped it around. They didn't even know he was doing it. And then there was nine major labels trying to sign it. Wow. So that so there was no band, but he named it. He called it the Dylans as a joke because he was such, I mean, because Colin, it was, is, I don't know where he is now, such a purist, worse than me about, you know, people ripping off really good stuff and pretending it's theirs, right? And, you know, he got so sick and tired of like fucking bands like ripped off my favorite tune. That's my favorite playing Campbell bastards. They get really upset, you know, <laughs> it's like, fair enough, mate, like rip it off, but like give credit, say, yeah, we ripped off this song cause it's ace. You should check out the original too. You know, that was his attitude. And so it's like, right, we're fucking calling ourselves the Dylans, right? Because the Beatles has already been taken apparently, like just to make a point. <laughs> And that's what that's why he called it that. And of course, enemy, all these people <laughs> like, you can't call yourself that. Who do you think you are? You're not as good as Bob Dylan. And he would sit back and let them do their outrage bit and then go, Beatles are already fucking taken. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is kind of basically the averse of, you know, and Picasso did us wrong big time when he said an artist borrows and a genius steals, right? That may well be true, but you don't tell people like that because then you're going to have Oasis calling themselves geniuses because they stole, (laughs) 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 you know? It's like, yeah, I'm fucking genius, mate. I just fucking ripped that off and ripped off Manfred, man, and uh, the kinks and put it together and made uh, Wonder War. Yes. Fucking awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty flamingo and whatever, you know. So there you go. Yeah, but I'm a genius. When Colin wouldn't have in it, that's why I call it a Dylan. So that's probably why it never went anywhere. It did not become super because he's got so much shit for calling it the Dylans. <laughs> yes, excellent. So when did you appear and and um, and Gary? Oh right, well then Gary, yeah, Gary, they they didn't have a drummer, so they found Gary, who was 
and I actually was most sporadically staying in touch with him because he's such a madman. Um, uh, yeah, and this was not your indie guy, right? He was from the manor in Sheffield, working class. No, he wasn't alternative or nothing. Didn't smoke weed or anything, you know. And he was just this hard lad from Sheffield Estates. And all, like, on the road with that guy, all his stories were about, like, fights he'd been in. <laughs> you know, all the time. I'm like, Gary, can we talk about something? Oh, fuck, you know. But he was also just naturally hilarious as well. But anyway, so so they found Gary, God knows how, and Gary become the drummer, cause, basically because he'd do exactly what you told him, which is what Colin needed, you know? And... um and then, uh, so while that, all that was going on, I remember all the buzz around Sheffield, all these local bands, you know, some of whom are still with us or artists are still with us, talking about this fucking, who are these fucking doing? Sheffield band, nine majors, no, you never fucking played a gig. <laughs> me included. I was like, yeah, fuck these guys, you know, because I was in a band, me and I was in this band with Crispin Humphrey at the time for a long time before he stopped that to do the long pigs. That's right. And so I was like, all right, I don't know what I'm going to do now. And then, so yeah, everyone's pissed off and righteously indignant about this crass corporate move that these, no one knew who these guys, you know, fucking Sheffield band, they never fucking played lead no. which was true. <laughs> The, the reason they hadn't is because there was no band. It was just Colin. Yeah. These two guys, right? It was just Colin's ideas. And so he kind of reluctantly had to front this thing, but he also had to find a band. So he found Gary. And then I got word, you know, he wanted an organ player. And a friend of mine, Andy Cook, who later became the Dylan's drummer, after Gary left, Andy said... You should join Dylan's mate. And I'm like, fuck that. Bastards never played again. <laughs> like doing all the rote stuff. Meanwhile, I called him up, you know. And, uh, and I, you know, I'd known Colin for a while because I'd been in a band with someone else who was a temporary singer for the violins. And, but I had never, I'd played a couple of shows when they'd opened for us and, you know, we'd never really spoken. And, but we knew each other. And so I called him up and uh, I said, all right, mate, all right, you, can, you play organ, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, right, have you heard about Dylan's? Do you hate us? You bet you fucking hate us, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah. No, I don't know. It depends on the music, doesn't it? He says, right, I'm coming around. And he, I'll never forget, he comes around his blue Ford Fiesta. And I go, I come out of my place and go sit in his car. And we sit in a like, shitty tape machine in his Ford Fiesta. And it's like, first thing is like, what bands do you like? I'm like, well, if we, or are we talking about the 60s, you know, the Seeds, West Coast, Psych Work, you know, the Floor Elevators, all that stuff. And, and, and we got into this long, and he was literally looking at me like, what the fuck? You know all this stuff we like turned out he knew all stuff I, I knew stuff he liked we were like and then we were you know it's like you gotta come fucking play you gotta play i'm like oh well i don't have any gear and this and that and you want real hammond and i still don't have one i've been trying to get one any money blah, blah, blah. 
so anyway, off he goes. And then in a week later, he calls me up from Leamington where they're recording Godlight. And he says, uh, mate, you got to come down. Get on the bus and come down here. I'm like, why? And he's like, there's a fucking Hammond here. You can come up, come come down here and track it. And I was like, at this point, I was like, yeah, I don't really want to. Yeah, I impinge on someone's session and shit. That's a bit weird and it's very loaded. But, you know, I was urged to go. So I got on a bus, I go down there and um, walk into the studio. Literally, nobody will talk to me. So, come that is. Like, who's this fucking guy, like, come to ride our gravy train? You know, even a producer wouldn't, like, barely talk to me. And it's hilarious. So I'm like, I can leave. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> I can go, whatever, I can go get coffee. Right? And Colin is like, fuck that, and sits on the floor in the studio. And now Colin, of course, is the man, right? And they've just been signed to Beggars, and the, the producer, John Rivers, been hired by Beggars. So was, he has to make his thing, and all of a sudden Colin's like, fuck it, I'm not doing it, I'm not playing. And John is like, what's wrong, Colin? He's like, I want to hear fucking organ. Yo, this guy's fucking come down on bus and you've been a bunch of rude bastards. <laughs> I'm like, it's all good. I get <laughs> but no, he's like, fucking stay here, mate. And John Rivers really didn't want to do it. He didn't want to haul the Hammond out. He didn't, want, you know, this is Jerry Dammer's bloody organ. For fuck's sake, this is where they recorded Ghost Town. You know, no pressure. <laughs> Yeah, and then meanwhile, I'm like, oh, I get to play a real Hammond, finally, you know. And um, so I stick around for that, but it's really uncomfortable. And uh, they basically give me <laughs> give me one pass at the song. I never even, I just figured out how to turn the fuck around, you know. And uh, I just, what's on that record is, was that one take? I smoked a massive joint and just went for it. And I thought, this is, they're not going to use any of this shit. So I just wigged out at the end of it. And they, But then what happens, we go back, and they continue working and mixing without the organ in, do vocals, blah, blah, blah. And then Leslie, the A&R, Leslie Bigley, A&R comes up to hear that her baby's first single, you know, because she's the one who got signed it in. She's so excited. She's brought champagne. And... Uh, <laughs> So let's hear it then I'm so can't wait so John runs the mix and, and she's like at the end of it she's like yeah guys this sounds amazing and she turns around and Colin's sitting on the floor again with his legs crossed <laughs> and she's like it's supposed to be the big moment and she's like Colin what's up don't you like it He's like, I just want to hear fucking August <laughs> so she turns to Rivers he goes, what organ? And he goes, so he has to then awkwardly explain who I am. Right? And she turns around to him, oh, hello. <laughs> I didn't see you there. All this shit. And she goes, well, let's hear it then. And so John gingerly pushes the faders up on the playback. At that point, Colin gets up off the floor and shoves them right up in the mix. <laughs> and then at the end of it, Leslie goes, oh, my fucking God, it sounds even better. It sounds so sick. It's a psychedelic there. And they're all like, yeah, yeah, we love it too. We said it was great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's like, oh, shit, you got to be kidding me. So that's how I got into it. And that was, um, God, and that was godlike. 
that was gone. <laughs> My God, that was the most, I've never heard a story like that, actually. That is... I wasn't even supposed to be there, you know. It was like, I, can t- I spent my whole time just trying to walk away. And then finally, well, fucking hell, he's gone to all this trouble. I should at least go and have one go at it, you know. Yes, absolutely. But, that is quite... But that was it. That was nice, though. You know, validation, I have to say. Yeah, that was kind of a bit of spinal tap, having the A&R yeah, person totally. as well. Was oh, that, because that, you mentioned the vocalist, was that Vince from the 1000 Violins? You That's mean? right, yeah, yeah. Because he, he, he yeah. kind of replaced John, didn't he? John Wood. Yeah, yeah. Which John was, went off. That's right. And then... Uh, Vince appeared. Being in a strange band with Vince. And he... I don't know, I don't think he... No, no, wasn't it wasn't John? Put it that way. No, it's a different vibe. And anyway, yeah. So then, yeah. So how do you, as you know, being in a band, you know, and obviously yeah. this is quite. It sounds quite loose at this stage. I mean, do you all yeah. then sort of sit down and think, right, this is the Dylan? You know, like you know, if you were playing football, you go, right, this is the eleven players. No. We've got a goalkeeper, you know, shall we just kind of quickly, because we've seen what happened to the Smiths, better just work out what the kind of contract's going to be at this stage. Because we're also on the Beggars, which is kind of, at that time was yep. a big deal. And, yeah. and, you know, it was quite a gothy kind of label, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, a very it? unusual signing for them. Yeah. You know, and so there was, you know, they had a lot of people, you know, and situ- there was Situation yeah. 2, wasn't it? Situation but, 2, yeah, which I think they started when they did the Charlatans. Yes, and uh, you know, I mean, I remember Roger Trust, who was the A and R guy, who the, some some of the main creatives there, saying, you know, yeah, he's cool. You just like <laughs> we'd had one song, and I'd had this organ riff that I'd ripped off of something, and he came up to see us one day at practice. I said, it sounds really great. Could you just change that organ intro for the beginning of that song? I'm like, why is that? This is where he's a bit like charlatans, isn't it? I'm like, it's actually a Steve Miller band. (laughs) 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 They ripped off too. It was a lot of that going. I was like, you guys really don't know. (laughs) This is all brand new. Because, okay, with the band, you do the single, which it sounds like the band is just, oh, yes, because I was just asking... You know, at that stage, do you kind yeah. of then sit down and think, right, this is the band. We need to just make sure we, we just kind of sort out the admin or do you just think sort the admin? I think, well, no, I can remember pretty clearly what happened as far as admin goes. It's like Colin pulled together this disparate group of, like, you know, completely mismatched people. I mean, there was no organic bond between any of them, right? No one knew each other. One's from the, you know, really rough part of, you know, the projects, as they call it, you know, I've forgotten the words now, uh, in Sheffield. And, um, you know, then two middle-class kids and then him from Manchester originally and then me from the South. You know, nothing connecting us, right? So there was no sense of right we're here we go guys we built this thing together first of all that wasn't there it was like more like a feeling how you justify it you know yes and but also you know going on with that was a real desire i you know on colin part of my part to to do it right i mean we loved all these bands that you know we wished we weren't this manufactured thing but we kind of we were kind of playing catch up. Like we had a very strong musical connection here and I, which continued after Dylan's, you know, to some much more interesting work, you know, but, um, 
which I have, uh, and uh, we never put it out or anything. But um, but yeah, you know, there was so there's no there's no cohesiveness in, in terms of like vision apart from wearing beads, as far <laughs> as I could tell, <laughs> you know. But it's, I mean, but it, you know, look where it came from. It all came out of one guy's head. Yeah. You know, this is the other way, and this way I choose to look at it, and, and, and you know, a chance to play, and to do the kind of music I liked, you know, and and you know, I hadn't been involved in any of the writing of the first. I'd been all Colin just showing these guys how three chord tricks work, and they're good songs. There's no question, you know. But um, by the time we sort of had really started playing together a, a lot more, it became quite clear who wasn't. Who didn't get it, you know? Like we wanted a really creative drummer, and and you know, um, the guy the guy we had at the time was you know, but he didn't come up with ideas. He told him what to play, and he didn't know any bands or anything, you know. So he wasn't really like that. Yes, but you so must. There was there was much more. Of, I mean, it became apparent in the studios, you know. Yes. Which is what eventually got switched out. But then you must have been quite amazed by the speed of how it also developed. And also when you listen back I to it, it. You, know, you, I you must think, God, oh, actually, that sounds incredibly good, considering you know what, it's, what, what the kind of reality of that was. And then working yeah. with people like Stephen Street as well. And yeah, thinking, right. This is quite weird. He's worked with the, some of the great artists of our time. Yeah. Um, working with Stephen Street was when it really started to hit me that, well, you look, you have an opportunity here to, you know, you're in, uh, you know, he's decided he wants to work with it. He must see something in it, you know. So I, I really, so I think started to look at different, and I finally got hold of the Hammond by that point. So I was super excited, you know. So for me, working on that record with Stephen Street was, was, was uh, very good, but. Um, having to navigate the sort of loud, there's like there was a hole that you had to walk around all the time. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, it's not like there was a whole band that was going to, oh, like, we get it. You know, you'd have to sort of painstakingly build it up. Um, but then again, that's what you do in the studio anyway, you know? Yes. That is what you do. You go off, you write your songs, and, and uh, you know, when you come back down to it, it's sit back down with your acoustic guitar, two acoustic guitars, and if it's a dual harmony type thing, belt it out and figure it out in the studio. Don't play what you've been playing live. Don't ever do any of that. So in the end, you know, it's like, well, it doesn't matter really. I mean, most of the great records that you've ever listened to, it's not who you think it is playing. It's not Paul, it's not George playing guitar on, on Taxman, you know. All my life I thought it was. You find out it's not, it's Paul. Oh, right. Still an awesome guitar part, you know, and so I remember a lot of that going on. And but but yeah, Stephen Street is was uh riding high. I think the last thing he'd done was meet his murder, yes. So that was, yes, and I mean, he'd worked with everybody. I mean, was it the yeah. case because with a lot of bands, there's a sort of at the honeymoon period where everyone's a bit of a gang and has that feeling, doesn't it? You know, things yeah. are going well. Did the, did the Dillons, did that never feel like you were a part of a bit of a gang? It was more like, you know, when you look at the Smiths and, I mean, those early right. years, 
you know, Morrissey, Marr, I mean, they were all completely in love with each other. They were on this mission, right. weren't they? They were going to yeah. conquer the world. Yeah. And, and yeah. you could see the love. They'd all got the lucky break in life. They kind of thought, yeah. Jesus Christ, I can't believe we're, we're suddenly in this position and we're creating some of the best music you could imagine. Yeah. And they felt yeah. really lucky and then it you know, doesn't end well. But, but did you ever sort of have that feeling with the band or was it just always a bit odd? No, I mean, I pretty, yeah, it was always odd. It was always like things pulling at it, you know. Um, uh, uh, yeah, there was, there was no organic sort of sense of mission. Like, this is our sound. I mean, like, the sound that we did, that I did, did end up with our sound, but that our sound came from a very specific idea that Colin had for a tune. And then I started writing with him, we would have a very specific idea. You know, so it's almost like two producers have a band, you know. It was much more like that. That, you know, that said, you know, of course, everyone, there's camaraderie and all of that. But and and until it all went horribly horrible. But um, but uh, the yeah, the the I was always envious of like, you know, I. I didn't know that I was yet to have that, I guess, put it that way. I, mean, it's, I, I suppose it's a bit like a first marriage, right? There's a reason why it's called a first marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it has to be qualified, you know. So, you know, I did go on to have that experience in a band 10 years subsequent to the Dillons, which is, you know, much more more like it. But there wasn't, there definitely wasn't that going on. And it used to irk me a lot as well, because, you know, you you wanted people to believe it was a thing. And um, so, you know, you had to decide how much of that was going to be projected. So when you went in to record Spirit Finger. Yeah. Was, did you, you know, by then you'd done some quite major pieces and had also been, you know, got interest in the States as well. And probably had you been, and you toured a lot, didn't you? You We toured a lot, a lot of touring and, you know, lucky enough to go to America and Japan and, um, then coming back, and some more touring after that, and I think then we started working on the second album. But now, what was going on there was, is almost in reaction to the Dylan's thing of playing these same damn songs every night. Colin and I had started to, I mean, it was very that was a very organic thing, just developed on as a natural uh, songwriting partnership that evolved between us. And we'd often ostensibly be doing stuff for the dinners, but really it was just like, fuck that, let's do what we want. And uh, I remember, we, you know, uh, the publishers and, and beggars can't wait to hear what you guys have been working on. And we went down there and they were horrified because it didn't sound like the Dylans, you know. It's like, yeah, it's good. It's better. <laughs> you know, they didn't want to, but Colin was usually, use, use, well, fuck you if you don't fucking like it, fuck off, you know. Like quite rightly, but um, uh, but by so, but we had of that batch of stuff that we took down to London. Do what I, I mean, we've kind of at that point, the first album was all Colin, the second Spirit Finger one was all me and Colin writing, and um, and we'd written them in his basement, all those tunes, and a whole lot more. And so we picked on some, on the ones we wanted to do. I went down to start recording it, and uh, I had to leave. 
which started like we're into the second week and my my first wife <laughs> uh at the time uh, was really sick so i quit the band at that point so just as we were starting to record an album which i thought was going to be a really organic like proper album that i was excited about i had to bail and leave these guys to record my tunes you know without me there <laughs> so it's weird hearing that record because i'm not on it yeah wow that is yeah. quite horrendous isn't it yeah it was tough to and then you know it all kind of started spiraling out i mean i had to quit couldn't talk and leave the house I, you know so i quit playing music for eight years after that because i couldn't yeah i had to become a look after a sick person so you know so but that it was it was like on the cusp of it i think it, you know that i listened to some of those songs recently to the demos of those songs recently and you know what uh, Pascal Gabriel, the guy who produced that album, you know, I wasn't there. I mean, Colin would be calling me from the studio saying, mate, we're doing this song. I need a, I need a verse for verse three. What you got? And I'd be like, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Yeah, check it on. All right, try this. I dig your disco disguise. It ought to fox all your friends. But, and I literally just make it up. And he got fucking great. Got it, got it. And he goes, be around the studio. <laughs> so I listened back to the other day and shit. I remember standing by me toaster coming up with that line. And that was coming off, off whatever it is, Spotify. <laughs> but um, there wasn't, there wasn't uh, any way to really realize those songs. So he went down there and, the, you know, it was, it's interesting. I mean, it was not how I'd have done them because the nuances and the tricks and the the stuff aren't there because you have to obviously be there. Yes. Know? Christ. That is, I didn't know that story. That was um, horrendous. Yeah, that's, pretty, that's pretty crazy. Yes. And the, guy, and the guy who did play keyboards on that album, um, he, he used to be a, a real friend of mine. I got him involved as a sound guy because he was a good engineer. And he toured with us, but little did I know he was trying to get my job. <laughs> and so and it was funny. And I found out he was trying to get my gig, even though I couldn't do it anyway. I'll never forget, I called him up and said, hey, man, you know, I'm, I'm, I just want you to know I'm really happy for you to take over as the keyboard player. I can't do it anyway. And I, I can't think of a better guy to, to <laughs> really pissed him off because he thought it sounded something really underhanded. Like, no, go for it, mate. Enjoy yourself. Have a great time. And yes. then he died. And he fucking died. So, you know, <laughs> it's a good thing I didn't hold a grudge. Blimey. Was yeah. that was that Craig? Yeah, Craig, yeah. God, yeah. he died. Yeah, he did, yeah. Jesus. Pretty, pretty soon after that. Bloody hell. I think there's another uh, member of the one thousand. No, he died a few years after the band finished, actually. Of what? What, the 1,000 violins? I, I was just... Um, oh, Dave, yeah, Dave Wormsley. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that was... Oh, actually, I know, that, he no, was No, that Collins. was 1992, actually. Yeah, he died of cancer. And he was Colin's best mate growing up. They grew up on the same street in, not Manchester, where's or somewhere near Manchester. Yes. Yeah. That is quite yeah. heavy duty. That is yeah. Good. So then, I mean, obviously that's quite... And then the band doesn't yeah. last much longer, does it, really? No, not really. It was just like, uh, 
you know, you, how can you reconstitute something that didn't really have a constitution in the first place? You know. Yes. And we'd, but we had Colin and I had sort of out of, you know, all that opportunities traveling, touring, exposure. We like definitely honed in on something I thought would have been great. I mean, it can't. And then you know, a little while goes by. I moved to New York, and I heard Ween over here. I was like, fine, we, we was Ween in England. <laughs> Nobody ever heard us play. <laughs> you know, that would have been the next thing that me and Colin did. Yeah, that was good. I'll send you some of those tunes, though. They're, they're, they're pretty interesting. And I think right after that, Colin gives up music completely, doesn't he? So, yeah, then it all sort of goes dark. I mean, like, I, I'd been to New York. I decided I was going to come live here. And I remember going back and seeing him. And that was the last time I saw him. I went around his house. Last time I ever saw him. Um, and I know he'd, he'd, at that point, quit playing. And he was working HMV, managing a record store. And I was like, how the fuck can you stand it? You know, kids come in asking for the very stuff that you've been trying to fight against all this time. And it, but you know he was always a contrarian. It's almost like he embraced the challenge of like, can I survive this? <laughs> I don't know, so perverse. But I and then I completely lost touch with him and made a few attempts to reach out over the years. But I'm, I mean, I heard a couple of things here and there, but I don't really know. No, I think that was it. Really, that was the. End. I think that was it, and and I, but you know, it's to this day it still pisses me off because one of the more talented singers I've ever worked, and I've worked with a lot of them, you know, since I started producing over here and doing stuff. Um, just a brilliant voice. He could make it cut. He could make it cut in any, he could sing it low. He could do this insanely high pitched thing, literally grabbing his throat and shaking it. <laughs> doing this like high pitched back and vocal, and he would harmonize that shit. And it would just like sound like, like, there's three Mark Bolands on the on the maddest cocaine, you know. It just you could do all of that stuff. You know how the T Rex got those high vocals? Yes. Like we would go for that, and like we would really go for it. Like we, I mean, we were big on harmonies of how the third voice is created when you, when you juxtapose two, and we happen to have a good sort of juxtaposition, you know. And he, I mean, he's just got good pipes. It's weird. Recording, you don't know until you re- actually record it, how that voice comes out, you know. He just had one of those. It's, it's great. Yes, and I know. I mean, enough, you know, listening to some of that stuff we did, it's just killer. Some of the vocals he does is just beyond, you know. Well, it's amazing how much of that stuff that I listen to, and it's one of those things that, you know, you have to be kind of, honest i think yeah. god this still sounds amazing today but then i think well yeah. does it or does it still or is it me just being old thinking it sounds like that but actually to a, a, another person it's like oh no god granddad this is this sounds so dated but it's like no jethro tull sounds dated yeah. yes sounds no, dated, but i don't sound, I, I don't think this does sound dated i suppose that's I why don't, i don't think so i mean you know it was uh, well, don't forget it was also the resurgence I mean, people say, oh, Britpop, yeah. But, uh, you know, there was a, a big sort of reaction against, not against, but because of Rave. It was like, yeah, this is great, 
quantizing and everything's like rigid to the beat and it's easy to to consume drugs to this music you know but there's also like the love of craft and the love of like original playing has never never gone away it's never going to go away you know yes this is true it all comes back to the beatles doesn't it really yeah it does and so all the recording you know that we did i mean i remember i probably yeah yeah with Stephen street uh, everything was there's one sample on the whole record and it's very Stephen street didn't know if we could do it or not. he thought he might get in a lot of trouble but we did it we did it nobody said anything <laughs> but that was the only only sample you know and having said that you know me and colin at the same time you know we our, our mo was sitting in his basement studio with two acoustic guitars right and a one pound microphone that we got from bardwell electronics and that was going through a wire pedal with which was set at a certain angle with a broken piece of drumstick and then from that to filter it just so and then that into like an spx 90 then into an eight track tape machine which was synced by a simpty to an atari st we were like DIYing, hooking up digital audio to to analog tape, right? Yes. We, and we were Luddites. We didn't know shit. We had to figure it out. So you could get your tape and you stripe tracks, track eight with Simpty, and then you can make it talk to the computer. We had to buy a Simpty decoding box which, and figure out how to... We, we figured out how to lock up a computer to a cassette tape. Jeezy, crazy. That's you amazing. know, just so we could do our shit, because all all our programming and drums are coming off a workstation, which had eight outputs, and floppy disks, you know. And so there were eight analog outs went to tape machine, and but then all the, but you also had the computer triggering all these other single samples as well, and then and keeping the timeline locked with this crazy contraption. And but also we could sit there with two acoustic guitars and make this far away sound, you know. It's, it's but so. We were we were not Luddites in terms of technology or anything, but we were like just uh, learn to play. Just we were trying to play better. We were trying to we were showing each other stuff all the time, listening to records and like figure out. And that guy's capacity and knowledge for music was enormous. Yeah, and I th I think it's a, I think it's a great 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 mistake that somebody didn't go and find him. Go, you're not going anywhere, mate. You know, let's let's reset. And, you know, but yes. you know how, how but many how many times has that story been said? You know, yes, it's tricky, though, isn't it? I mean, when you listen right. to the Dylans, which is the track that you're proudest of? When you sort of catch it, you think, God, that that was genius. Uh well, one of the favourite songs we had, which wasn't executed right, but I keep thinking about re-recording a song called Grudge. Cause he, but you'd need him to sing it, <laughs> you know. But uh, that that was that was on the second one. But I wasn't involved in recording it. But was writing it. But off, I think off the first. There's actually one of my favourite ones would be. Uh, I hope the weather stays fine, because it it's I think it was a B side, of God like or something. It's something we just threw up. Yeah. In this in a little studio in Sheffield and it just had a vibe to it 
and still does have a vibe to it. And another tune called Mine, which I don't know where that one came from. A friend of mine, well, not a friend, but I'd known him for years. I ran into him years later, he'd been in jail. And he said, it was that song that kept me going, mate. <laughs> what? That's weird. God, that is no, weird. Anyone ever heard it. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but also, I, I think uh, Sad Rush Inside is a great song. I think that was one of his best hooks. Get a sad rush inside, no matter how hard I try. Mary Quentin Blue. They were all good songs. Yes. I, I remember trying to hate them when I first joined a band, you know? Well, this is so simple. Yeah. Well, you can't stop singing it, can you? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that's what it was all about. Yes. And I guess when the band finished, mm. I mean, it was only Colin that you kind of thought, wow, the other members were just like, we're just a bit like going to school with people. You think, well, that was great yeah. five years, but. Pretty much. Yeah. It, Let's not get too emotional. <laughs> Let's you yeah. know, just see you if I see you. Don't worry about it though. But yeah, yeah, I'm moving to another bloody country anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so then, so then, what happens to you? Because you obviously have stayed in music, and and that has become uh, yeah. your career. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Well, but so after the Dylan's, though, I couldn't play for eight years, and I was assuming that was it, done. You know, not a very happy time. And then, um. <clears throat> You know, I came out to New York, met a woman who changed everything. I said, right, that's it. I'm one of those crazy people who leaves their home country to be with a woman. And I'm still here. But um, so, and I I honestly really, of course, when I got here, she decided she didn't want to be with me and dump me. So it was alone in New York, no money, no job, no place to stay. It was like a sting song, isn't it? Dude. uh, (laughs) Oh. And now an out of tune sting song. And and I literally this is pre just well not pre internet, but no one was really using it. So yeah, eight uh, ninety nine. Ninety eight nine ninety nine. And I like I gotta get a job, I gotta find I oh, fuck, you know. And I went and got the village voice free paper, which now is only online. And thank God it was. I'm standing on Houston Street and I'm looking at the ads, I'm looking for any job I can find, you know, stacking shelves and anything. I remember saying, don't look at the music section, you know, because it would just torment some. But sure enough, I looked in the music section and there was a one line, it was all like wedding band New Jersey and blah, blah, blah. And, it, and there's one line that said, Atlantic Records signed singer-songwriter seeking keyboard slash organ player for American tour. I was like, well, shit, that's gone, you know. I literally put my last quarter in the phone and left a voicemail, like desultory, thinking, yeah, it's not even going to listen. And then he called back and said, oh, man, I knew the Dylans, I remember you guys. You want to come over? And so okay, I went around and that, me and Christian became fast friends and I started touring with him. So I just by luck, sheer luck, you know, happened to look at the Village Voice at the right time. And that's how I met. And it's funny because, you know, coming from a very dry, a very dry time musically, I expected New York to be very cliquey and difficult. But, you know, the music community is still, you know, it's very self-supporting. 
Yes, because we do. You always get these, you know, documentaries, and everyone talks about the seventies, even though it was yeah. riddled with unemployment, drugs, and, mm. and being bankrupt. Everyone has that rose tinted. It was all Max's Kansas City and CBGBs, and everyone was hanging yeah. out with the Ramones. But, it, but you know, it was just rats running over your head in the bed. But you know, apart from that, it was great. You know, so yeah, obviously, it's, yes. it's great if you don't mind rats. It's great, <laughs> you know. But there is, there is always. I think there's, you know more of an element in the in New York. It doesn't matter how good you are or how original you are. There's someone up the street who's light years ahead of you here, you know, or, and everyone knows it. And if you forget it for a second, you stop being good. And it's a very different, and there's no safety net in America, you know, and having come, and what you were saying earlier about, you know, everyone could get on a doll and, and join a band. That was kind of like, that was the uh, Britain's national, our service, our generation's national service. You know what I mean? Yes. Right, you got two years to, to rock. Go. <laughs> you know, don't get your hair cut and do it. You know, but the, I mean, what a luxury. And yeah, sure, you know, it's like reaping and the culture reap the benefit. It was some amazing music and great scenes. But there's something about that safety net not really being here that makes me believe in it a little more, makes me believe, like, really? You're going to try and make music in the midst of all this shit and this nightmare, really? Yeah. Okay, I'll see you on Thursday, 8 o'clock, you know? Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, there's, a, there's a definite, I mean, I was, my old joke is, like, there's the American can-do spirit and the British could-do spirit. <laughs> you know? Well, I kind of, I do look back, not with nostalgia, because I kind of remember thinking it was, A, it was grim, but then I also remember, as people start reminiscing, going, yeah, but don't forget, we did moan all the time, didn't we, in the 80s? We, we moaned about yeah. everything. And sure. now we look back, and you had unemployment, you had the job seekers' lands, yeah. you had your housing yeah. benefit, you had your cancer tax paid, and then sure. you also could go to university, college, polytechnic, and yeah. have a grant, you know, and sign on probably at the same yeah. time. And we still moaned kind of all the time, actually, if you forget yeah, that. You know, and, that's useful. Yeah. And, I, and I remember sort of, you know, I sometimes do at night, sort of listen to sort of old, uh, I don't know, interviews of bands, I suppose. And I remember, mm, jo- yeah. you know, one with Joe Strummer going, you know, there's just no good music anymore, is there? There's no good. And I'm thinking, right. we look back at that, and that was the <laughs> period where we all go, oh, you know, it was brilliant back then. And there's Joe moaning Bang. that there's no good music. And Absolutely. You man. kind of think, It'll... yes, we're. English, we moan, don't we? <laughs> We're really good at that. Really, really good at it. I mean, I still do it. And unfortunately, you know, people quite, I mean, I do it with people, I, you know, people are paying money and stuff. And, uh, you know, I'll say something like, well, do you really want us? Do you think that's a good idea? I think it's a terrible idea. <laughs> and they look at you and say, oh my God, you English people, you're joking, right? I'm like, no, am I? <laughs> well, I can't tell. I'm just going to assume you're joking, but it's like, no, I'm actually moaning. <laughs> I can't yeah. stop. I know. But, that I mean, well, there's that cliche. I mean, there's that, how are you? Oh, not bad. And, and you know, Americans go, not bad. That's really depressing. You think, oh, yeah, yeah. sorry, I will stop saying that. Or have a great, yeah. have a good day. And you think, Jesus Christ, you're optimistic. And you think, yes. yeah. What makes you think I'm going to have a good day? Yes, yeah. I know. Moreover, why do you care? <laughs> so, yeah, I but, I... so you managed to stay in the music world. That must kind of blow your mind, mustn't it? Yeah. But, you know, with, with I mean, like, got two tours out of, out of meeting Christian and I met 
a bunch of people. And two of the guys I was on tour with then, then we've, uh, they'd started another band. And so I joined up with them after those tours finished. And that lasted for 10 years. That was a band called Melamine with the, uh, some, you know, we did a bunch of albums, a lot of touring and everything. And, uh, we, you know, it was great, very productive band. Still enjoy listening to this stuff and still play the odd show here and there with them doing different stuff. And we're actually now thinking about reforming it now that there's a lockdown. Yes. <laughs> we can't actually get together. But, um, and then, you know, doing lots and lots of recording, like producing lots of people's stuff and then, I guess a couple of years ago, I was like, I'm going to do my stuff now, you know. I feel like I've been quiet for long enough. I might have absorbed some stuff. And so I had these songs that had been following me around for a while. And um, honestly, you know, didn't have a band or anything. And just like, well, you know, you've got to arrange it. You've got to make it happen. No one else is going to do it. There's no management deal anymore or any of that shit. And... Um, was very hesitant to ask the people I wanted to ask, you know, the dream players. Yes. You know, oh, they'll be busy, you know, and all this. But, you know, eternally grateful that they, I literally, I booked the studio first, just otherwise, because I knew I'd never do it. <laughs> so I booked the studio. And I wasn't, because I wasn't going to engineer it myself. I wasn't going to produce it. Well, I'm not fucking doing it. I'm just playing, right? Because you can't do anything 100% if you're doing two things. So, um, they all said yeah so to my delight went in and you know tracked 11 songs in one day and uh, still two years later trying to get them finished that's another story but um it is uh definitely not a given that you're going to get to time to do what you need to do in new york to make music you know but i'm i'd ha rather have it that way than than have it easy i guess you know yes if and you don't act if you don't have a real fucking hard time lugging your shit across town by the time you get there you know and everyone else has like made the effort to get there you've already it's already happening before anyone's played a note do you know what i mean absolutely it's got to be done and you can't yeah and you can't really get around that i don't i don't think you can Playing isn't just playing, you know, it's like committing to being, to getting there to play. I mean, that in itself is setting you up for a better show, you know, whereas if it's just like, oh, you got to go and play this tonight, you're playing here tonight, you're playing it because it's your job. You're not going to do it as well, you know. So when, because one person you mentioned, which I don't quite mm. know, who's Christian, by the way? Oh, Christian Gibbs, yeah, C. Gibbs. Um, you should check him out. He's so uh, he's singer-songwriter guy. He got signed to Atlantic, um, two-album deal, and uh, he'd already recorded his album in New York, and then he wanted to re-record it in LA with Paul Fox, who'd just done Orange and Lemons for XTC, and so there are actually two versions of that record and they're but they're both great but they're both extremely different but uh, anyway so you know uh 
he's still going now. I mean, I've worked with him off and on over the years. He's he's still in New York and he's doing an excellent show. He just gets better and better. I mean, he's one of the best American singer songwriters around. I think. I mean, he's just got, and he's a great player, great entertainer, and uh, you know, there's a whole sort of family, I guess, of musicians who play you know with each other around it. I'm part of. It's a very, and it's something that was never really existed in any other town. You never, never saw that in London. You never really see that in, you know, Sheffield. You didn't. I mean, Sheffield. You were talking about all these bands around that time who, yes. who like, just wow, well, the moment's gone or whatever. And there were, you're indeed correct, but there was one band who didn't. And everyone said, what the fuck will they ever just give it? up because they suck and they sound the fucking same every time and they're always trying to get on every gig <laughs> and nobody really likes them and why doesn't Jarvis just give it up yes. and look what happened Jar- he carried on for 10 years not changing a goddamn thing until all those voices were the ones that were going oh yeah I fucking knew him I always knew he'd be a superstar you know yes. but he was they were Deeply not wanted. Nobody wanted to play a show with Pulp because they thought they were so uncool. And isn't that it's a glorious story, you know? I what know. happened? It was the John. Re- it was kind of John Peel kept sort of would just play yeah. them once in a while, wouldn't he? And it was like, oh yeah, yeah. But the, I mean, that sound hadn't changed. You know, when you hear common people, I remember hearing that on some like West Street like street fair you know like oh yeah and that one hasn't changed a bit it's still a good tune it just annoyed us at the time because it wasn't famous <laughs> it's funny i know he's done so and Ri- well and, and richard hawley is dear old friend of mine i mean like he's you know what a lovely guy and it, you know it's great i mean he's not lovely any more than anyone else is but when he puts it down, when he puts his heart into it, it's lovely, you know. I mean, that he's able to do that. Yes. So look, after all this, all these decades, oh my God, you started in East East Burgle, which is kind of weird, isn't it? Just, isn't it? A, just a weird world. But um, what would you say to a, if you could have said something to your 18-year-old self starting out in that sort of interesting and, and sometimes murky world that was in his music, what, what would you have wanted to say? Um, I, I think uh, don't be afraid of of, of the notes. Really, I because nobody told me or trained me. I thought anything with a number after it was for jazz players. You know what I mean? I didn't understand what it meant. Seventh minus seventh. They were, that's a really complicated sound thing. You know, look, to, just to have that all taken away and realise, look, it's just an escalator. It doesn't depend on what step you get on. You know, that number one big, big thing is like people think they can't do music because they don't know what it means, right? Yes. And you know, I didn't have any lessons, so I just had to figure it out myself. But the other thing would be to copy, copy, copy. Just copy everything. And the only reason I can play anything is because I'd put drop the needle on the record player and run down to the other end of the room and try and copy it. And even though it was like the piano was half toned out of tune, 
to try and, you know, it, I was determined. I wanted it. How the fuck? If you don't have that, how the hell did they make that sound? You're never going to do it anyway, are you? Hmm. Right? I know. It, it was always that. What is that sound? That sound, for me, when I was a kid, what is that sound at the end of uh, She's So Heavy? I mean, that... Billy Preston's Hammond organ, that's what that is, mate. But I didn't know that as a kid. I just wanted to know why why is it sound so good and different and special, you know. Um to so copying anything is frowned upon, but it's what we do. It's the only way you're ever gonna figure it out, you know? Just don't copy and then say you made it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes. that's it. Or if you do call it the Dylan's no, but, uh, but the other thing, the other thing was, um, um, something that occurred to me quite recently, but I really had do wish I had from a songwriting point of view figured out is like, you're always going to at some point think, ah, this sucks. I know what I'm doing. I'm ripping off so-and-so. This is a Tom Petty song. This is, that's why uh, I'm just reinventing the world. There's no point. The, the minute you feel that, I feel that anyway, what I say to myself is, right, try and play it like it's Tom Petty. Try and play it like it's that song. And you suddenly realize how vastly different it is. There's nothing like that. You just got it in your head because it's the same chords or it's a couple of notes. But no, and any more you try and make it sound like the thing you're trying not to copy, the more it will become your own thing and reveal itself to you. I pretty sure that's true i think our brains default is to say yeah you can't do that yes it's interesting isn't it it's a weird you have to break your perspective you know i mean you know even how you sit how you put your coffee down changes how you feel all of these things or or to power or to encapsulate the whole thing is the guitar player from ween once said well, with guitar, you have to make a decision early on in life, above the dick or below the dick. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of meaningless statement, all right? But I really think that's it. I mean, it's like confidence. It's all confidence, isn't it? I mean, like when you're young and you meet somebody confident, you're like, how the fuck do you do that? I'll never be like that. And it's... It's all and it's all because they don't worry about what you're doing. But it's interesting. We, we very easily put pressure on ourselves for no reason at all. I know. You know? But it's interesting. I, spoke, I remember the guy from the jazz butcher, Pat. He sort of. Oh was, yeah. He was riddled with insecurity. He was saying, "God, he, you know, he, he just couldn't get over how confident someone like Sting could be or Bono. You right. know, it's just like that kind right. of. But they probably, I don't know. They just kind of probably just like, well, that's you know, that's not my problem, is it? You know, I just get on with what I do with lots of problems that you probably don't really know what I've got. But you know what I mean? It's like from the outsider's point of view, you always right. think everybody else is kind of having a great time, don't you? Whereas, and I can remember when there was a documentary about bands reforming and mm. and everybody was having a great time on the police one, apart from the, you know, Stuart and Sting, you know. <laughs> and they had to have bands, and then it was like, God, you know, we really are, we really are unhappy. So they had to have band therapy and they kind of understood each other and then got through the rest of the tour. But it was kind of interesting. It's like, you know, you, you know, we, we have that perception, don't we, that, you know, Sting must just be one happy camper, one 24-7. But, you know, he's, he can probably, when he needs to, 
be decisive and get on with the job. Absolutely, yeah. It's like uh, when you hear that phrase, uh, so-and-so is very difficult to work with. That usually means that it's because they're really good at what they're doing and they care about doing it right, you know. Yes. Um, well, it's so, interesting because I've interviewed a few mem- um, bands who had mm. a very, I suppose, I suppose, SWP kind of socialist quality. <laughs> we'll try to sure. be, um, you know, try to have a sort of let's all have an equal voice and equal voting. And um, yeah. I remember this guy, Joseph from Blythe Power. He said it yeah. took him about 30 years to go, look, it's my band from now on. Yeah. The members right. are going to do what I say. I'm not going to. Yeah. I've. It's taken me a long decades, basically. Right. <laughs> Most of my life. I mean, that's uh, yeah, exactly. I think that's actually one of the things that, that, that shot the Dylans down before it even got going was Colin insisted that whoever's in the band got an equal share yeah. across the board because it would eliminate problems. I'm like, no, I don't think so. I think it's storing up trouble here, but and sure enough, it was, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's a difficult, you know, it's better. You know, you need to credit need... where it's due, you know, and that's that's the name of the game. Or as as um uh I think it was Duke Ellington, some some band leader trying to get it going. He says, How do you actually even start out? How do you get a band? He says, Listen, every band leader's gotta have a gimmick. I have one. I give them money. <laughs> <laughs> it yes. works. Well it's um, interesting with people like David Bowie. I mean, he just had to kind yeah. of get a new band for virtually every project, but obviously, yeah, you know. Well, I think, I I mean, yes and no, actually. I mean, I I was lucky enough to meet Dennis Davis. Dennis Davis, the famous Dennis. Unbelievable. I mean, this was in Harlem at St. Nick's Pub, which is just not happening anymore. Well, before lockdown, it stopped anyway. But my mate was saying, you have to come up one night. Literally, we leave Brooklyn at 11 o'clock at night and then up in Harlem at 12. And I don't know what to expect. You can go on this tiny, it's a tiny bar and it's packed. I'm thinking, we're not even going to get in. It's like this basement joint. But everyone makes way for you. You go in there and there's this like 14 Nigerian dudes playing this incredible music, you know, on stage. And there's people coming and going. I go out back and I'm introduced to this guy and they go back in. And the drum has changed, and I'm watching this guy lay it down. I'm like, damn, it's good. And then my buddy says, oh, you come out, come out back. Come meet Dennis. I'm like, cool. So, so there I am. I'm sharing a joint with this guy in his backyard in Ireland, talking away. And eventually he goes, oh, that's right, we're talking about logic. He says, oh, man, I'm trying to learn logic. I'm like, no, oh, I'll come tell you. I teach two people how to do it. He's like, oh, you do? Really? So we're talking, talking. He says, you're British? And I said, yeah. He says, oh. Yeah, yeah, I lived in London for a while, like a few years. I said, oh, really? What were you doing there? I said, oh, I was playing. I was like, really? Who, who, were, you, uh, <laughs> who were you playing with that you would be living in London all that time? I said, David Bowie. <laughs> I was like, Dennis Davis. Yes. So, uh-huh. I'm like, there, you're the architect of my youth. And uh, here I have <laughs> I've been standing here talking to you for half an hour, <laughs> you know. And he was so wonderful, so generous about it, you know. But he talked about Bowie and, you know, made a point of making sure when I walked away that I would know what kind of man Bowie was, you know. Because Dennis died of cancer. Yes. But uh, he did tell me that. You know, when I first got diagnosed with cancer, I had a $68,000 medical bill. 
disappeared one night. David took care of it. Wow. That, that was Bowie, you know? And, yeah, I mean, like, you hear bad blood between him and Mick Ronson, but who knows? I mean, we'll never know, will we? I mean, I'm sure you can't, you can't be around someone like Bowie indefinitely. And like, I'm always going to work with you. I mean, you just be constantly in the guy's shadow, right? Yeah, abs- no, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because I've always been obsessed with Bowie. So it's, it's, Me too, absolutely. And it, and it was kind of, thank God it was my first single and not Gary Glitter. But it was kind of, you know... <laughs> you <it> was, win. <laughs> no, it was so close. But, you know, you look back and you think, you know, he spent his 60s, the 60s, playing some really dreadful music. You know, like at the time you think there was the Beatles, Stones, Hendrix, Doors, and Bowie's kind of contribution to the 60s is like wow that's oh you've gone again bugger oh oh are you still there it said oh look reconnecting jesus it's it's close you might are you there yeah me yeah, Yeah. i was just saying that you know bowie's 60s stuff when you look at it if it wasn't the fact that he became david bowie the 70s onwards you know we'd have just put that in the bin wouldn't we really and then yeah, you know we would. you you kind of see what he does in that that period yeah. with Ziggy and the amount of yeah. pressure and the drugs and everything going sure. on I mean he must look back and think god if I could do it again I would have just done it a little bit differently but the pressure totally. is kind of enormous I mean you know and mm. you know he had all these you know he had Angie there he had you know his manager to freeze I mean you know, ripping him off for everything. Yeah. Just, you know, the, the other members of the band were getting ripped off. You had Garson, who yeah. was this Scientology guy on keyboards who was kind of a bit of a big <laughs> character, wasn't he? And then, you know, he, you know, and Bowie had his own demons. I think it was like, yeah. I'm sure later on, you know, he, he looked back because he, he, gave, he gave Trevor Boulder a phone call when he realised that Trevor was going to die. And, and it was oh, a bit really? like... I, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, he, wow. he kind of phoned him to say, look, you know, oh I haven't spoke God. to you, and I'm really sorry. And and it, and apparently Trevor was like, oh, that's just really, you know, that's kind of great because now I understand mm. what it was. Because it's, mm-hmm. you know, he, you know, I just kind of think, you, you know, it's it's easy when you're not Bowie to think what you would do, but when you're right, when you're sort of being chased by everybody and you've got huge debts and I can't imagine, yeah, you know, you you kind of and he's like, oh, by the way, could you make another? He did an album a year in the seventies. Yeah, produced several right. albums and relocated yeah. several times. I mean, yeah, and, and that stuff he did with Iggy Pop. Is, yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not. I'm such a massive, massive fan of everything that Bowie did, pretty much. You know, but I think, I think that's some of my favourite work of his. What he did there, you know, yeah, absolutely. That looseness and that precision—it's just brilliant. And then he sort of, you know, he gets, you know, Dennis, and he gets all these other characters, mm. and you know, he's getting divorced from Angie, and he's in Berlin, mm. and he's got, you know, drug problems, and you're yeah. coming up with the next album, and you know, and they're not selling that well, and he brings Low out, which must have gets absolutely slaughtered by people like Charles totally. Shaw Murray in the NME. Yeah, yeah. Who kind yeah. of has to go, yeah, I did write that review and that was me being a bit of a knob. So, yeah, you know, it's I'm like, kidding. yeah, it's kind of, but it was interesting because I did, I've done, actually, I've been tracking down people who've worked with David Bowie as one of my projects, actually. So I've interviewed, really? okay. I've interviewed quite a lot of the members, including various backup singers who worked with him on the, when he did his Glastonbury tour. And, and Oh, wow. 
Fantastic. And it's kind of interesting how they got to A, meet him and the relationship mm. they had with him was just fantastic. Mm. But I did a couple of interviews with Woody Wood, Woody Woodmancy and that was an mm. amazing story that when, because Woody gets a band together with Tony Visconti, Holy Holy, and yes. in 2016, they phoned Bowie from the stage because they're in New York to wish him a happy birthday. Do you know oh, this story? Wow. No, I didn't. So they, you know, there's this kind of rumor that Bowie's going to appear on stage and all that, but mm. he doesn't. And they, they sort of phone him and say, happy birthday, David. And then, you know, they play the gig. And this is when they were doing that kind of Bowie stuff. Yeah. And then the next morning, you know, Woody's kind of like, his phone's going mental. He's got like hundreds of messages. And he's like, what the fuck? And it's like, David Bowie's died. And he's going, fuck, we were just talking to him the night before. I do remember this, yeah. They were doing a three-night thing. Yeah. And it was just like, yeah. God, the coincidence of that is just spooky, you know. And yeah, that's yeah, really weird. It is kind of weird. But, you know, all the people I spoke to who have worked with him, you know, just say he was amazing, really, to mm -hmm. be with, you know. yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it was always just, I was obsessed with him when I was growing up. You know, I wanted to meet him and all of that. And, and you know, and, you know, I thought I was the only one. And then when he died, it's all these stories of people have the same way. It's like, what, what is that? What? He wasn't our savior. It wasn't like he was our Jesus or anything, but like he was onto something, yes. you know. Nobody's really pinned down what it is. I mean, freedom, independence of thought, all of that. You know, I mean, he, he was the only established rock star you were allowed to like if you were into punk as well. You know, he was. You know, oh yeah, Bowie's okay. Yeah, because he was the. Yeah, no kidding. He bloody set this up for you, you idiots. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he really did. Absolutely. You know? But there was that little clip that was out last week, wasn't there, from that interview on MTV where he's been interviewed by that guy. And he, he says to the bloke... Where he's wearing this suit, he's I, wearing that wall suit, and he talks about... Black artists. MTV not playing black artists. Yeah, in 83. God, that, yeah. That was quite amazing. And he handles it so well. Yes. Right? He doesn't... He's so polite and charming to the guy. And he basically just lets the guy hang himself... Yes. You know, and then he just kind of smiles, looks off camera and goes, well, <laughs> I tried. <laughs> it's so disarming. Yeah. Yes, it's amazing. But look, this well, has been, <laughs> sorry, going into Bowie land here, but um, yeah. yes, Bowie. But look, this has been amazing. So when I put this out, I'll, I'll send you a link and if you want, and then okay. you can always, you know, post it on. But um, this has been great. And oh. it's good to hear about the Dillons because frankly, you know, they are quite something. And the 1,000 violins, obviously, have been, you know. That was a good, yeah, that was good stuff. That's how, I met his, that's how we met his girlfriend, in the violins. He's dressed up as a, a, as a beetle, busking in Hamburg. And his girlfriend, Nikki, walked by and said, like, seriously? The boots and everything? And that was it. They were in love. Excellent. Is he still together? I'm sure they are, wherever they are. Nice. I would love to run into him. I just say, listen, mate, we've got to put these songs out. It's about time, you know. Every well, I think I'll send you. A, I'll send you a couple. You'll get a laugh from it. Yes, that'd be brilliant. But well, look, thank you ever so much. This has been amazing. Thank you. And I'll send yeah, you. I'll, I'll send you some links to okay. various other things about this book because you that's, need to. That's you, great. You do need to see this book. This is amazing. But look, have a great day and stay All safe. Right. See you later. You too. All okay. right. Yeah, yeah. Stay safe. Thanks, man. Thanks. Bye-bye.
And that is the end of the interview. Well done if you got to it, to the very end. But anyway, look, I enjoyed it, and that's the main thing. Uh, that was me in conversation with um, Quentin Jennings from The Dillons and obviously other musical projects. Uh, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. Um, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. Also, these have all been archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. So there you go. Anyway, stay safe. Have a great week.